Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on station KLA. Our guest for this 401st show is Dr. Thomas McGovern, professor at Hunter College and Cooney Graduate Center, who's going to be talking to us about Norse Greenland settlements, reflections on climate change, trade, and the contrasting fates of human settlements in the North Atlantic Islands. Our history buff is Brett Menard. And so, Brett, start us off. You talked to us uh, when on the broadcast episode a little bit about the reliance on seals as a source of hunting. So does seal just replace fish, or uh, what all can you do with a seal to provide for uh, your dietary needs? There's an Icelandic proverb, which I wish I could say in Icelandic, but translated as a seal makes a house happy. So uh, that's that's sort of the the idea. You can get lots out of seals. Um, The the question of what happens when the Norse go between Iceland and Greenland um, really is all about marine ecosystems is the um, in Iceland the seals are present they have the harbor seal and the gray seal which are present in small groups and they don't migrate and if you overhunt them which is not all that difficult to do they'll disappear or they'll go somewhere else and you lose them so we know in Iceland that seal hunting was pretty minor uh, we get a few seal bones here and there but not a whole lot and it was heavily regulated. This was something you couldn't just go out and, you know, kill your neighbor's seal. This was something that people had to do in a very controlled fashion. Um, when they got to Greenland, they crossed over uh, a major environmental uh, threshold. And this is where you have these, these migratory seals, the harp seal, the hooded seal. And again, the harp seal is, is the most common seal today on the planet. There's millions of them, and there certainly were millions of them in the past. And they're, they're ice riding. They're riding the drift ice uh, today in a, in a big spiral going around from uh, Labrador, then to Greenland, then back again. Um, so you have then this, this incredible resource. One of the things which was a big surprise to us in doing zooarchaeology, animal bone analysis, which is what our lab does, um, was when we were working with the Icelandic bone material, uh, there's just tons of fish, you know, right from the beginning. They're, they're, hunting a lot, they're fishing a lot of codfish, uh, cod species, uh, you know, they're near relatives, and they're certainly processing them uh, into dried fish. Because one of the things we're discovering is we're getting headless dried fish in large quantities, you know, 60 or 70 kilometers inland uh, from the coast. So something's going on there right from the very first settlement. And it's not a big surprise because, of course, back in the home countries and Scotland, uh, you'd also have intensive fishing. In, when they get to Greenland, the fishing seems to pretty much convert over to seal hunting. Um, one of the big surprises was despite pretty good conditions of preservation in the excavations, we just were not finding any quantity of, of fish bones, you know, just a few. What we were getting was lots and lots and lots of seal bones. Um, and it looks as though pretty rapidly they converted over from being a, a society whose maritime adaptation is all about fishing to being one who was into to seal hunting. Um, and the big question, of course, is how they organized it and how how they actually did it. Uh, and, of course, with the end of it, you get lots and lots of harpoons and, you know, sea ice hunting gear. And in Greenland, we don't find that in the Norse collections. 
Um, there so far has been no no harpoons that have been identified in a north excavation, and also the um, the seals, which are the Arctic seals that make breathing holes, and which the Inuit today hunt through the drift the ice using cool harpoons. Um, the ring seal and the beard seal are pretty rare in the Norse collections, even though we know they're present in considerable numbers in the area they, they lived in. So they're focusing in on these migratory seals, which come in large numbers. And we think what they're doing is something very similar to what the Faroese still do in the Faroe Islands, which is say they do boat drives. And this is aimed at pilot whales, where they will drive a whole pod of pilot whales up on the beach and then kill them all and push them up, which they still do to the, the horror of Greenpeace and visiting tourists. Um, but anyway, it's a big thing for the Faroese to do this. And it's, it's all about solidarity. It's about sharing. It's about communal um, resource exploitation, and the thing is you need a bunch of people and boats to make it work. So we think that what's happening in Greenland is they're doing something similar, uh, driving harp seals into nets or up on the beach and killing a whole lot of them at once. Uh, for sure, we know that the seals are getting distributed to the community because some of the sites that have the highest percentage of seal bones are actually four or five hard hours walk uphill. So they are not right by the shore. So we're seeing something where the community is coming together, killing a whole bunch of seals in the spring, and then distributing the bodies uh, afterwards to, to everybody. Uh, so you have to imagine these, these seals being hauled uphill, uh, probably on horses. Uh, it's quite some distance. So the seal hunt was, it was a big deal for them, and it certainly was productive in the sense that it, you know seals are pretty rich meat. Uh, they also have lots of fat, so that's a positive if you're living in the Arctic. And, of course, they provide seal skins, which are, you know, nice things to have, very useful. Um, so we, we're, we're, we're thinking that this is a major adaptation change which occurs when they, they go between uh, Greenland, Iceland and Greenland, and it's, it's changed dramatically. And that's what happens when they encounter climate change, and the farming gets tougher, and the growing season gets shorter, and the pastures are, are damaged. Uh, they pump up the ceiling. And you can really see that both in terms of the seal bones going up in the, the garbage heaps that we, we excavate, and also in the bones of the Norse themselves. You can see from the stable isotopes, nitrogen, carbon, that these folks are going further and further into marine food web, so that by the end, the Greenlandic Norse have a profile that looks very much like uh, 19th century Inuit folks who were almost entirely marine uh, uh, dependent. So it's a, it's a striking thing which we can see in, in different indicators in the archaeological record. Seals are really important in Greenland, and they become much more important as they're facing climate change. Um, Tom, I'm interested then, you're talking about some pretty spectacular social organization, and I'm thinking of Iceland where you have these independent holdings and and this very democratic system where everybody gets together and kind of votes on stuff but but functionally you're working very much as individual family units these kinds of activities sounds like you're talking about a much more tightly organized community is that true or, or do we have any way of judging that i think i think the icelanders today would probably um not tell you that their their commonwealth was terribly democratic, um, and, and it was certainly dominated by the great chieftains. Even though people did get together and and you know there was there was there was the voting took place. Also, a thing I think we're realizing is the Icelanders were also organized in a fairly tightly organized communities. Um, 
one of the things we're seeing is they are being able to get fish inland uh, in some quantity. So something's going on there in terms of connection between the coast and the inland farmers. The other thing we're seeing, and this has been documented by my student now colleague Megan Hicks, um, who's been working in the Mivotin area in later time periods, is one of the things we've got there is a remarkable story about long-term conservation of nesting birds. The Mivotin area today gets about 30,000 waterfowl from both continents who nest there and have their, their babies and go away again, and it's a, it's a World Heritage Site as a result. But also the Icelandic farmers take 10,000 eggs a year out of those nests. But they do it in a very careful fashion. They never take all the eggs, and they, they regulate um, anybody hunting the, the birds. So they don't kill the adults, don't tell you to take all the eggs. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. But these rules seem to have been in place since the Viking Age. So that's some pretty impressive communal management going on there. So, so I, I think we're, we're talking about society who's quite capable of doing very successful group resource management over millennial scale, which is a story for Megan's tell. Uh, but uh, in Greenland, we're also seeing transitions taking place through time, as happened in, in Iceland, too. And the place becomes more centralized. There's no question that both in Iceland and Greenland, after the 1200s, you're seeing the rise of great families. Uh, in Iceland, they actually have a civil war, uh, and about five families slug it out about who's going to be the king of Iceland, and they all lose, so the Norwegians take over. Um, in Greenland, we don't have the same records, but we do have indications um, of what my colleague, Yetta Arneborg, who studied the churches, she's from uh, Denmark, uh, and she talks about a pattern which she calls hostile takeovers where the small Christian churches, which were pretty evenly spread across the landscape, get absorbed into a few really big churches. And these close down the smaller ones. And the big churches, the ones which turn out to become stone churches with stained wood glass and church bells coming in from Norway, uh, those are the ruins that you mostly see in, in photos of a you know, Greenlandic church. Um, most of the Greenlandic churches actually were much smaller than that, but they go out of business. So somewhere around the 1200s, it looks as though in both areas you're getting some political centralization taking place, um, maybe uh, increasing stratification. Um, and certainly this is the high Middle Ages. It comes to um, east, you know, as far west as Greenland. So in Greenland, we have as our last record from 1408, uh, the record of a proper Christian marriage being held at one of the big churches at Falsay. Um, and also they note that somebody was burned for witchcraft in the same church a few years ago, a few years previously. So we have there a very medieval society, despite the fact that they're, you know, thousands of miles from the home country. Okay. Brett, you got another question. Yeah. Um, I recall reading in the Icelandic sagas about how valuable a resource um, whale carcasses would be. Uh, do you see something similar happening in Greenland, or do they not... Uh, migrate so close? There certainly are whales in Greenland. Um, and uh, whales are always a problem for zooarchaeologists because, of course, you can butcher a whale without bringing any bone home at all. And there's, there's wonderful stories in Iceland of people fighting each other with chunks of whale meat. You know, as the, the different groups are boring into the whale from the different sides. Um, and certainly whales are a big resource for the Icelanders. Um, we're participating in a really fun project with uh, Vicki Sabo um, uh, in West Carolina State, and she um, has an NSF project combining ancient DNA project with the zooarchaeology with the Icelandic historians who are, are 
digging through all the records of, of whales and from Iceland and all the observations. And it's, it's a fascinating project. Uh, anyway, one of the things that's coming out of this is that the Icelanders probably were whaling uh, fairly extensively, and they seem to have been able to kill blue whales, which we thought that was not happening in the industrial period, but there it was. So there's a lot we don't know about whaling in uh, both Iceland and Greenland. Um, but one of the things which we're realizing is that it was a very different North Atlantic uh, prior to the Great Whale Massacre of the 18th and 19th century. So it's it's a fascinating view into the past, but it's uh, sort of biology too. So, But it looks as though we're not seeing anything like the kind of intensive whaling that you would see with the Thule people uh, or with the the Dutch and, uh, and Basque whalers coming in later in the... the uh, post-medieval period. Okay. We would like to thank our guests for the 401st show, Dr. Thomas McGovern, professor of Hunter College and Cooney Graduate Center, who talked with us about Norse Greenland settlements, reflections on climate change, trade, and contrasting fates of human settlements in the North Atlantic Islands. The History Buffer today's show was Brett Menard. You can listen to ROIs. It's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM, and 106.1 FM in the Quad City regions at 9.30 p.m. You can listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com, put KALAHD2 in the search box, and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows have been heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put in KALA Radio in the search and click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on our all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.